I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now, is hung with bloom along the bough, and stands about the woodland ride, wearing white for Eastertide. Those are the words of English poet and classical scholar A. E. Houseman. He's talking about the blossoming of cherry trees in spring, the breathtaking but temporary flowers that usher in the growing season throughout much of the temperate world. But of course, like anything rife with life, cherry blossoms must eventually fall. Their brief existence, as Hausman makes clear, serves as a marker of time, the start of a new season, the passing of another year. As we enter the prime blooming months, we want to savour these fleeting blossoms, take in their beauty and share their delight before it's too late. So, as you may have guessed, today's show will be entirely devoted to blossoming trees. We'll get into selection and planting advice and journey across time and space to discover their history and present circumstance. When you have the blue sky behind this tree. It's spectacular. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's quite unusual. Diversity, as opposed to singularity, is very, very important, not only in horticulture and natural world, but also in society. We all hear on the news every day of the week about climate change and how it's happening all around us. So these plants are becoming rarer, you know, by the moment. Tree nurseryman Nick Dunn will open the show, walking us through how to choose the perfect cherry tree for an English garden. Journalist and author Naoko Abe will then take us back to the turn of the 20th century. She'll tell us the story of Englishman Cherry Ingram and his work to preserve rare cherry varieties in Japan. Richard Baines, curator at Logan Botanic Garden in Scotland, will be bringing us to the present, giving us a glimpse into the work being done to protect endangered evergreen magnolias in Vietnam. And we'll end with RHS advisor Lenka Cook. She'll give us a masterclass on planting flowering apple trees in March. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Let's get right into it, shall we? And head to famed plant nursery Frank P. Matthews. Here's their managing director, Nick Dunn. Cherry trees are all enveloped into the genera prunus, as you will know. And as a single genera, it has the most wide-ranging flowering period than probably any other genera that I'm aware of anyway. So if you go from the winter flowering cherries, which often start towards the end of November, and then move all the way through the different species, the subatillas, the incisors, then the hybrids, and eventually you come to the beginning of the Japanese period, which is generally in early April, 
and that takes you all the way through to the end of May. So for that reason alone, there is an immense choice of what you can choose for the time of year and the tree size and so on. And the flowering quality and characteristics are very variable from delicate single flowers to densely double flamboyant blooms. So it's a remarkable group of trees and they're ideally suited to our climate. There's a lot of frost resistance in the flowers, unlike other flowering trees and plants. They're very robust. They just give excellent value. So the range of flower and the timing gives people any option they want. So if you've got a space in your garden, be it a large space or a small space, and you want to enjoy spring flowering at its best, you have a choice. As a nursery, we offer, I think, up to 70 different forms of flowering cherry, of which half are Japanese. So you've got a complete spread. So you can start with winter flowering. You can go to the, what I would say as a good group, of early spring cherries, late winter, early spring. That's the incisor group. This is the Fuji cherries. Yes, they come from Japan as well. But the point is, I think, absolute choice. Uh, flower type, single, semi-double to double. Timing, autumn color or otherwise. Many of the flowering cherries have excellent autumn color. And you've even got some bark colours as well for the Prunacerula, which is quite well known as the birch bark cherry. That has a fabulous mahogany bark. The flower is small and delicate. It's not known for its flower, but it's known for its bark. And you can even buy good flowering cherries that are grafted on top of that stem if you wish to. So you have a Prunacerula stem and then you have a much more flamboyant flowering tree so the choice is remarkably wide. Here are my top three recommendations of flowering cherries, which mean a lot to me and I hope will give great satisfaction and enjoyment for people who plant them. The first one I'm going to mention is quite unusual. It's Prunus pendula stellata. It's actually not a pendulous tree, that's a confusing species, but it's star-shaped and it's very unusual. You would say a lot of the flowering cherries would look alike if they're pink and double or single and white or whatever. But in actual fact, this is very, very different. It's not Japanese, it's earlier flowering. And when you have the blue sky behind this tree, it's spectacular. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's quite unusual but one that we have always grown and I would recommend. The other one is a variety called Haringi. Haringi was a lost cultivar of Japanese cherry that was refound and reintroduced in the UK only in the last 10 years. It's beautiful because rather like Blushing Bride, it has very long flower stalks and this exposes the calyx and it's a very contrasting dark pink brown calyx against the petals. And it's a rare cultivar as well. And I would recommend planting it. It's not a big tree. It comes right in the early to mid part of the Japanese season. So it's mid-April. And it's 
spectacular, absolutely gorgeous. So the third one is an old variety called Ichio. That's I-C-H-I-Y-O, Prunus Ichio. It's an old cherry. It's semi-double, delicate pink. And I first recognized it as a young person sitting under a cherry tree with the petals falling on the ground. One of the most beautiful and delicate of all the Japanese types. I'm lucky enough to have a succession of flowering from late February all the way through to the end of May. And it's funny how the trees get hidden away until they come into flower and you almost forget they're there, but they're in the background and all of a sudden they come to life and you see it as you're walking around the garden or sitting from your house and all of a sudden a tree becomes a beacon and these there are successions of flowering beacons throughout that period. It's wonderful. If you'd like to learn more about how to grow a cherry tree in your plot, we've included a guide in our show notes. We're lucky in the UK. We have quite a range of cherry blossoms. And as Nick mentioned, there's an almost absolute choice. I really love our native wild cherry, Prunus avium. Like in Hausman's poem that I read at the start of the programme, it really is hung with blossom. And it's just that lovely seasonal marker. It really marks that time in the year when spring really shifts up a gear. The clocks go forward, suddenly you have lighter evenings. And in the setting sun, it's just such a beautiful sight to see the wild cherries growing along hedgerows and along the edge of woods. It's almost like patches of white smoke. And of course, they have these wonderful cherries which are a little bit tart, but a really amazing intense cherry flavour that come around my birthday at the end of June. But if you've ever wondered how we've ended up with such a variety of Japanese cherries here in the UK, well, it largely has to do with one man, Collingwood Cherry Ingram. He became absolutely obsessed with cherry blossoms, or sakura, as they're called in Japan, and he was pivotal in both popularising many garden varieties in the UK, as well as helping preserve their diversity in Japan itself. Here's journalist and author Naoko Abe with the story. Collingwood Ingram was an eccentric Victorian Englishman who was born into a very wealthy family. And he fell in love with Japanese cherry blossoms at the beginning of the 20th century. And he brought back what we call scions, branches of the trees, back to England and then planted them in his garden in a small village in Kent called Benenden. And he created the world's largest cherry tree garden at the time. So he started being known in the horticultural world as Cherry Ingram because he had many, many different varieties and species of cherry trees. Cherry blossoms were relatively unknown at the time. So he was the first person in Europe to really introduce them to the UK and Europe. And so that's why you have so many cherry blossoms in the spring in the UK. He first went to Japan in 1902. He probably <laughs> was so used to British landscape of modern buildings. So he was enchanted by the Japanese countryside. And he thought that the people were living with nature and everything kind of blended in. 
But in 1926, Ingram returned to Japan for a cherry hunting trip. He wrote in his diary, the old oriental towns have been wiped out and upon their sites are being reared ultra-occidental buildings of great size and hideousness. <laughs> so he was very disappointed. And he discovers that many of the traditional cherry tree varieties were disappearing from Japan because the country was so much focused on modernization and industrialization and then, you know, militarization to become a strong country. They had to be strong and to be modernized to create a new nation state in order to remain an independent state. Because, you know, remember the other Asian countries were colonized by the Western powers. So the old tradition was forgotten. Leaders just focused on moving ahead and forgetting the past. So the cherry varieties which had been cultivated were forgotten. A new variety called Some Yoshino was developed during that time, at the end of the feudal time. And that variety, that single variety, became a symbol of modern Japan. They planted huge amount of cherry trees of this single variety. So <laughs> in a very short time, the old varieties were forgotten, disappeared, and then this single variety just took over the entire country. And so Ingram realized that was what was going on in 1926. And he was deeply concerned and hurt <laughs> because he, he said, I came to Japan to find the old varieties and rare varieties, but they're disappearing. And the very important thing that happened during this trip was in Tokyo, he had a chance to give a speech about what his impressions were about Japan and cherry blossoms. So he gave a warning to Japanese, you must value the diversity of this tree. Ingram was a Darwinian, so he was a believer of diversity of species. So for him, diversity was a must. Then he decides, this is an extraordinary thing, that he decided to preserve the old and rare varieties himself. And that's how he went on his journey, sometimes on foot, sometimes on a horse, and deep into the mountains to find cherry varieties. He discovered some new varieties in the countryside. And then he returned one of the most beautiful cherry varieties called Taihaku, which means great white cherries, which had gone extinct in Japan. Taihaku is now one of the most loved cherry trees in the world. So it was all thanks to him. It's very interesting to note that the disappearance of diversity of cherry trees coincided with the path to authoritarianism, which means the singularity of social values prevailed and the diversity of values was forgotten. So it's a very interesting parallel that those ideological paths took place with the disappearance of cherry varieties. For me, Ingram's warning was also political warning. And unfortunately, cherry blossoms became a symbol of 
Japanese militarism, and blossoms were used as a symbol of short life, dedication to the country, fighting for the country, and dedication for the emperor. Diversity, as opposed to singularity, is very, very important, not only in horticulture and natural world, but also in society. If you have diversity of values, diversity of trees and blossoms and plants, you are much stronger and you have much more likelihood of surviving. In Japan, up to 90% of the planted cherries in urban areas are this single variety. And there is a problem because if one tree gets a disease, then it can spread to all others. So just sticking to one singular variety or species is dangerous. Cherry Ingram's message for diversity, unfortunately, fell into deaf years in 1926, but now, luckily, the message seems to be hitting home. In Japan, there is a trend to plant different varieties and species, creating really nice cherry garden or planting cherry trees along the river. It's something unique, something original. So I think his message is still very much relevant. Thanks there to Naoko. You can find a link in our show notes to the book she wrote about this story. It's titled Cherry Ingram, The Englishman Who Saved Japan's Blossoms. Like Cherry Ingram, plantsman Richard Baines believes that preserving even the rarest varieties of trees is of the utmost importance. Richard works at Logan Botanic Garden in southwest Scotland, which specialises in growing all manner of exotic plants and really pushing the boundaries of what you can grow in the UK. At Logan, Richard has made it his mission to grow rare and endangered species, helping to safeguard their survival long-term. Today, he's here to tell us about what's happening with the evergreen magnolias at risk of going extinct in northern Vietnam. So in 2019, I led the third of my expeditions to northern Vietnam. And one of the species of plants we were really trying to find and locate was a tree called Magnolia grandis. And Magnolia grandis in 2010-12 to 12 was classified as critically endangered by the Global Tree Campaign. In its surveys, that they found there was only 61 mature trees left in northern Vietnam, which is an extraordinarily small amount. In recent years, seed collection has been taking place and a repatriation scheme has been going on. And in 2015-16, for example, more than a thousand magnolias were replanted in the wild. Now, one of the things we were really hoping to do was to try and collect some seed from this critically endangered plant and bring it back to botanic gardens here in the West and to try and establish it in botanic gardens in an ex situ conservation program. And when we were out there, on this day, the terrain was very uneven, very steep in places. And after setting off about half past six in the morning, we travelled over very rough rock. You had to wear gloves, for example because it was almost like tufa and would cut you. And you could be walking along a path, or a so-called path, shall we say, and in front of you would be a three-foot hole which you had to jump, and the rain started to come on. It started pouring with rain, as it does in northern Vietnam, torrential. And eventually, about two o'clock in the afternoon, amongst this moisture-laden environment full of mist, in the low 20s, 
we saw these highly elongated trees reaching from the sky, and we were told that these were Magnolia grandis. And they weren't like normal magnolias, which we would expect to see in gardens. They were giants of the forest. They were probably 30, 40 meters tall and evergreens. And they hosted a whole variety of other epiphytes on these trees, apart from Magnolia grandis, who's probably about 20 or 30 other species living in a symbiotic relationship with them. So it was fascinating. They've got enormous leaves, and then they've got this sort of pale reddish flower. And we managed to collect six little seeds and brought them back with us. We scarified the seeds and we sowed them as we traditionally would in compost and covered them over with gravel. But unfortunately, we didn't have any germination at all. So we're planning another trip to Northern Vietnam in October of this year in partnership with other botanic gardens in the UK, such as Kew. And we're hoping to go out there again and collect a small amount of seed. So Magnolia grandis has become endangered for a number of reasons. In the past, there has been logging going on. There are a lot of the intensive cardamom plantations in the area. And what the cardamom growers often do is to cut down the mature specimens of our forest, which are the seed-bearing specimens. And so you get very little regeneration. And often with logging, you know, large trees are cut down and extracted away from site. Again, during this era of climate change, there's quite a number of places in North Vietnam which are experiencing landslides due to torrential amounts of precipitation. So there's a whole host of things which are affecting these plants. The key, you know, to really ensure the longevity of species like this is to actually create an in-situ magnolia conservation programme, which is run by locals who value the trees, who know what the endangered trees are, and also to actually help conserve them by planting them out in the field, by collecting seeds, by growing them in small nurseries. And we visited some of these small nurseries and it's, it's happening you know, really well. And so that's really encouraging. But the second best way to do it, and as a fallback position, is to grow them in botanic gardens. So that if for whatever reason, a plant does ever become completely extinct in the wild, we've still got the genetic pool, which we can work from. And if possible, to reintroduce it in the wild. We all hear on the news every day of the week about climate change and how it's happening all around us. So these plants are becoming rarer, you know, by the moment. And we've got to do all we can do to conserve these particular areas and educate people about, you know, the value of, of these plants, you know, and show what, what amazing plants they are. And where possible, try and conserve an ecosystem rather than an actual species of plants. But we need to understand exactly the full suite of plants which is growing in this ecosystem. So that's one way of, of us doing our little bit to try and help to conserve the long-term future of these species. And Logan is one of the few botanic gardens, even in Britain, which is now establishing quite a, a good collection of evergreen magnolias. And when you grow plants and seed, it probably takes a minimum of five or 10 years before the plants are a flowering stage. So it's a slow process and you need to have a lot of patience. And if you get a hard winter, so this is the hardest winter we've had for 10 years. We had minus five this year, which is very cold for us. So sometimes, you know, if you plant out a young plant and you get a hard winter, all your hard work can go down the drain. So you need to put a block on your side as well. Thanks, Richard.
If you would like to learn more about Richard's conservation efforts in Vietnam, check out his book, Plant Explorer, A Plantsman's Travels in Northern Vietnam. We've got the link in our show notes. And now for our last story of the day, RHS advisor and fruit tree superfan Lenka Cook is here to tell us about how to plant apple trees to ensure you have both spring blossoms and bountiful harvests for years to come. Apple trees, they are just so, so good. Yes, they've got so many things that they can offer you. In spring, they've got fantastic blossom. You can see all the bees buzzing around them. When they finish flowering, their foliage will unfold fully, which is nice, really fresh green. So where later on, you can see the apples developing. And when it comes to coloring, some of them make actually fantastic display and nothing like picking an apple from your tree and having the first bite with a good crunch. At least I like good crunch. Now is the perfect time to plant bare root trees and as well container grown trees. So what you need? You need to choose a nice tree from a garden center or you have already ordered one online. When you are choosing the best spot for your apple tree, it will be somewhere where it's sunny, is away from prevailing winds. You don't want frost pockets either. You want the soil to be nicely well drained. Apple trees don't like sitting in water, but they don't like to be excessively dry. If your soil is on the dry side, make sure you mulch the tree well with a layer of your homemade compost or bought in soil conditioner. You want to create what we call a tree circle. It's basically a circle around the tree without any vegetations, with no grass. This should be ideally at least meter in diameter so the tree roots do not have any competition and they can establish really well without the grass or any other plants so they're taking away moisture and nutrients. After planting, before you put the mulch on, you can put a couple of handfuls of feed. Things like fish blood and bone is very good. Natural fertilizer is naturally slow releasing because it needs to be broken down by the soil bacteria. So just the tree will not get all the nutrients at once. So when you are planting, it's important to plant it correctly. The common mistake is planting the tree too deeply. You only want the first roots coming from the stem to be just a low soil level. You don't want to plant them too deep. So when you are making a planting hole, look at the depth of the pot or depth of the roots. When you are looking at bare root, looking at the original soil mark, it will give you idea how deep to make the planting hole. However, it needs to be at least two to three times wide. So you are letting the roots colonize the soil and establish well. When you are filling the hole back in, you can improve the soil with a bit of organic matter, your homemade compost, or you can get in the garden centers soil-based conditioner. So you can mix it in with the infill and that will be enough for the soil improvement. 
make sure just that tree is well healed in so it's not flapping in the wind and it's good idea to put in a stake which you would keep for about 18 months until the roots are fully established. After planting you would water it. Usually at this time of year the soil is well moist however the watering is quite good for the soil to settle around the roots. Whilst you plant it, now is the time to prune. Though it seems quite heartbreaking, you paid lots of money for this nice tree and you need to prune it. Normally fruit trees in the gardens, the freestanding ones, they are grown as what we call a bush. Bush is actually a tree on a short stem. You want to create nice open center crown with three to five main branches. To do that, you would need to prune any central stems out. So you want five shoots radiating from the stem. If you imagine like umbrella, you've got the ribs of the umbrella and you've got the handle in the middle. So when it comes to apple trees, you don't want the handle in the middle, you just want the ribs of the umbrella. So you need to do that. Then you need to shorten the remaining branches by the third to a half to encourage strong growth. Now we are approaching the blossom seasons of apples. So look around your neighbors, flower again and get inspired to plant the tree yourself. Thanks Linka. Well, that's about it for today. This week, I'm going to be going nuts in my garden, sowing lots and lots of hardy annuals. It's the perfect time. Hardy annuals are flowers that you sow. You can sow direct into the ground now and they'll flower from June right through to September. It's a cheap, easy, wildlife-friendly way of getting lots and lots of color in your garden. I'm gonna be putting in some old favorites like nigella, love in a mist, poppies and calendula, which is a brilliant edible, also known as English marigold. But if that's too obvious for you, why not experiment? Because there are loads and loads of hardy annuals available. There's things like amber boa, which is kind of like a posh cornflower. They have these really lovely sort of double cornflower type flower heads and they have a nice scent as well. It's kind of warm, sweet vanilla scent. Things like ami, which is a cut flower version of cow parsley. And there's one called echium blue bedder, which is a variety of our native vipers bugloss, which is brilliant for bees. So there's tons you can sow, very easy. Dig over the soil, fork it over, rake it to remove some lumps, scatter your seed, rake it over, and then stand back. In a few months time, you'll have a really, really good display. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening, and hopefully it'll mean we continue to see a wide variety of cherry trees across the UK for years to come. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. 
I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 